Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The MacArthur Foundation is celebrating three indigenous people who are invoking their culture in both traditional and contemporary ways. They are among the 20 people honored this year with the so-called Genius Grants for their outstanding contributions in their fields. Today we'll hear about what drives their work and what is next in their efforts to interpret and express indigenous culture in the public sphere. We'll have that discussion right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes will continue to collaborate with jurisdictions to provide robust law enforcement services, according to tribal officials. This comes after the Lake County Board of Commissioners notified Montana's governor last week the county would no longer provide law enforcement services on the Flathead Reservation. Lake County commissioners say the state should pay the county for law enforcement services on tribal lands, but a judge recently ruled the state is not required to do so. The county said it will no longer oversee felony cases on the reservation. In a statement Tuesday, CSKT Police Chief Craig Couture said the change from Lake County does not impact their ability to provide the highest quality law enforcement. Tribal Council Chairman Tom McDonald in the statement said they're committed to doing what's best for their communities and will continue to work in partnership with other governments that share felony jurisdiction. The tribe says it will collaborate with the state and federal government on next steps. Attu was one of the forgotten Alaskan villages of World War II, an isolated island on the Aleutian chain, where the Ununga seemed to have a good life. But then, in 1942, the Japanese Imperial Army invaded and took all 40 villagers to Japan as prisoners of war. Until this month, there was only one last survivor, as KNBA's Rhonda McBride reports. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Final prayers and songs for Gregory Golodov were heard in an Anchorage Russian Orthodox Church this week. He died at the age of 84, not too long after the death of his younger sister, Elizabeth. Golodov was only three when his mother, father, and all seven of the family's children were taken to Japan, where only half of the village survived. In a 2018 interview, Golodov said he was lucky he arrived in Japan well-fed, due in part to the success the Unungach had at hunting and fishing. I was so fat, I guess, chubby little boy. Golodov doesn't remember much, except the constant hunger. We only get uh, one bowl of rice a day, sometimes one uh, salted herring, you know. The rice was actually less than a cup because it was watered down. This is all I get. <laughs> he said the Japanese cooks did give him the burn scrapings from the rice pot, even though they were starving too. The captives and captors alike suffered through the final days of the war, but the difficulties did not end with World War II. His father, two brothers, and a sister died before the federal government rescued them, and they were never allowed to go home to Attu and relocated in Atka, an island about 500 miles away. Alleluia, alleluia. Glory 
Dmitry Filimonov described Golodov as a humble man who never spoke of the war and instead devoted himself to his new community. Throughout his life, he has been a great leader. I never saw in him hate or anything of that sort. Gregory Golodov was the last link to the people of Attu, but for his descendants, it's not the end of the story. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. Chef Sean Sherman is traveling to Dubai to discuss indigenous food and knowledge at the United Nations Climate Change Conference. According to the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, Sherman will discuss the role indigenous knowledge can play in navigating climate issues. He was invited by the Global Alliance for the Future of Food and the Rockefeller Foundation. The conference takes place November 30th through December 12th. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce in Anchorage, Alaska. Lakota artist Diani Whitehawk says she wants you to come away from her work pondering the relationships between indigenous people and colonial structures. Patrick Makuakane is doing more than just preserving traditional hula dancing. He often portrays Native Hawaiian culture through a modern lens. They're among this year's MacArthur Fellows, people who are awarded a no-strings-attached grant to celebrate major accomplishments in their discipline. Today we'll hear from Whitehawk and Makuakane about their work and the power of using their cultural connections to educate, inform, and enlighten audiences. Please join us with your questions or comments for today's guests. The number to our studio, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are now open. Speaking with us now from San Francisco, California is Patrick Makuakane. He is a Kumu Hula choreographer, and he is Native Hawaiian. Good morning, Patrick. It's great to have you on the show, and congratulations on your MacArthur Fellowship. Good job, brother. Well, good morning. Aloha, and thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, tell me, I mean, where does this stack up, a MacArthur Fellowship, alongside all of your other accomplishments as a choreographer and as an artist? Well, gosh, let me see. I'm kind of like miles ahead of everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is like, it's shocking, really, to be included with such an esteemed group. Um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. 
Well, how do you like being referred to as a genius grant recipient? I mean, those have got to be a big pair yeah, of shoes it's, to fill. You know, it's a bit of a ridiculous title to try and live up to. Um, I prefer Kumuhula. Uh, that's what I've been for a long time, and that's the best description of what I do. So I'm happy with just that. But yeah, it is something um, impossible to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk more about your work. Now, um, Hula, this tradition that you uh, carry on, how was it passed down to you? Well, um, I have really several teachers that have taught to me from their lineage. And so it was passed on from mainly three teachers. Um, and the last one, May Kamamalu Klein, is a traditional exponent of Hula. So while I was like jumping around and playing Mr. Contemporary Hula Dancer and Choreographer, I was um, firmly established in my foundations because of the teacher that I just had recently. I mean, for many years, she um, was an exquisite exponent of tradition and ensured that I understood what all of that entailed. Now, in addition to this, this tradition of hula, you've also developed a new style of hula. Tell us more about that. Yes, I call it hula mua, which means like a hula that progresses forward, taking from the past and using that to as a foundation to create work. Um, you know, hula normally is performed to just Hawaiian music and drumming and dancing and other percussive instruments. But I think the art form is so beautiful and expressive that it shouldn't be limited to just Hawaiian music. It should be partnered with anything I happen to love and feel inspired by, which is what I have been doing um, for my almost 40 years plus here in San Francisco. Well, what kind of music then are these dances performed to? Is it like hip hop, rock, well, pop, classical? Well, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Keep going. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, All okay. of that. All of that. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example of that. And I'm sure as Native Americans, you will find some resonance in this. In a hula school, you always honor the place in which you grew up or that you're from. It's your only hanao, your lands of birth. And you honor that place in song and dance, right? Well, I'm in San Francisco, so the song that we have chosen to do that is I Left My Heart in San Francisco. It's really written <laughs> as if it was a Native Hawaiian song. You know, it speaks about the extraordinary, unique uh, districts of your home. And a love affair happens within the song, and you honor that place with much aloha and respect. And then you dance a hula to it. And that is so Hawaiian. Even though I'm here in San Francisco, I get to practice being a Hawaiian, a native Hawaiian, and using those customs and traditions, but in another kind of contemporary way. And I would really like to reframe this conversation around tradition as something that's sort of stuck in a place in time. Tradition is dynamic. You know, it moves as the culture and the environment changes. So it, part of our tradition is definitely innovation. So that's where I'd like to be able to speak to, is that we're not just traditionalists, we are also innovation, innovationists. Mm -hmm. The old Tony Bennett song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco, I love that, Patrick. That's, I like that song, and just everything yeah. you're describing sounds so, so cool. Well, tell us a little bit more about the actual, the dance, now the actual, the way the dancers move and the choreography, is that different as well in addition to the music you're describing? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because, first off, <clears throat> my dancers are trained hula dancers, nothing else. They're not contemporary dancers or hip-hop dancers. They have no training in those art forms, and neither do I. So our movement vocabulary is entirely based in hula. That's the, 
foundation of our movements. So when I'm doing these other pieces, the, the hula might be stylized, but it all comes from that place, from that pico. So if you're looking at our movements, I mean, you can really sense the, the continuous thread from our traditional movement vocabulary to what I'm doing with any contemporary song or um, movement. There, there is definitely a strong connection to our past. Mm -hmm. Patrick, hula dancing, I think we, we see it so much on television and in movies and but I, I, I'm curious to know, like the, the type of dancing that you do, the tradition that, that you carry on, as well as your new style, how does it compare to like, you know, when you watch a television show and, and there's just like some hula dancers in the background or like these old Elvis Presley movies. And I mean, it just seems like, is that accurate? Those types of hula dances as well? You know, we have to go through those movies, and I can tell you which ones are and which ones aren't, and which ones were um, shaped for those particular um, movies, because some of them are, you know, and, 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 and there's been a tradition. It, it moved from something really traditional and sacred, and it, it moved into something else that a lot of people consider um, hokey and silly and of a certain time. But I feel that all of them has a place in the timeline from early on before we were colonized and occupied to this very movement today. And I think every, all of it, all of it has a place to be um, witnessed and honored, really. Um, but people don't realize that hula is our movements that come from our environment that really are generated from the way that the wind moves, the leaves and the sun, the warmth of the sun on our face and our bodies and the way the tides and the ocean moves. All those movements in hula are generated from the natural environment as like Native Americans, as are our gods. They're all elemental. So everything that we commemorate and celebrate comes from our relationship with our natural environment. Mm -hmm. And that's part, and that has been part and parcel of the dancing for, you know, eternity since the beginning of time. Got it. Got it. And Patrick, what are some of the venues where you and your dancers perform? Well, we have a home season in San Francisco, which used to be at the Palace of Fine Arts, this amazing theater in the marina. Um, we have performed all over um, San Francisco and Hawaii and some places in the East Coast and Actually, last year, we performed at a really special place, which was Roberta Flack's living room. We performed for her personally um, because she's a fan of our hula school. How's that? Crazy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Wow. Now, are, are you, how long have you been in San Francisco, Patrick? You, you grew up on the islands, right? Yes, I grew up on the islands, and in many ways, I feel like I never left because I'm back in Hawaii seven, eight, nine times a year. Um, but I've been here for nearly 40 years in San Francisco. So I think of San Francisco as home, but I think of Hawaii as home home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can relate. Totally, totally. And Patrick, when you folks go out and you perform these dances, whether it's there in San Francisco or you're in Roberta Flack's living room, or something, right. what, what is the message that you folks are looking to convey to these audiences? Well, you know, that's a good question because oftentimes, especially when I first moved to San Francisco and I would tell people that I'm a hula teacher, I mean, nine times out of ten, people would say, a hula teacher, and they would move their hands from side to side and say, oh, do you wear a grass skirt? Oh, my God, so many times I had to hold myself back. 
but it's changed now. People seem to be more cognizant of hula being something that's really one of the most expansive and expressive arts that we have as Hawaiians who, when I was a young man, it was something that I got into to help kind of express my identity as a native Hawaiian. And it is a dance that really sort of empowered and redefined a culture. So for those of us who are hula exponents, students and teachers, we recognize the transformative power of hula, especially in relation to building and nurturing community. I mean, people have no idea really the, the immense um, profound impact that hula has on many people's lives. It, it really is kind of almost cultish <laughs> in the very best uh -huh. of ways. And all of your, your brothers and sisters, uh, Native Hawaiian people, what's the feedback? What do they think of, of your performances? You know what's funny is like we do our shows here in San Francisco and then we take it back to Hawaii because I have to like go back to the motherland and see how they like it because if they're throwing tomatoes or pineapples or coconuts at me, I have to sort of rethink <laughs> what I'm doing. But they love it. They embrace it. They love the change. They have been supporting us for the 20 plus years that we've been going back to Hawaii. And let me tell you, when I take my company from San Francisco to Hawaii, it is incredibly expensive because the, when we rent the theater, it's just not for one day, it's for a week. So we can load in everything that we need for the show. It's, and we always lose money anywhere from 10 to 30, $40,000 always, because it's just that expensive. But it is necessary and it is worth it because I need that validation and confirmation from the hometown people in order to continue my work and worth every lost penny. They love it and I'm really <laughs> grateful and humbled. Well, that is great to hear, Patrick. We're going to take a short break, but folks, if you are listening right now and you would like to give Patrick a shout out, you'd like to ask him a question about his hula tradition, phone lines are open. 1-800-99-NATIVE. The museum at Warm Springs is marking their 30th year with an exhibition of traditional and contemporary works from their tribal members. They're one of the museums we'll hear about as we recognize the upcoming Tribal Museums Day. That's on the next Native America Calling. Open enrollment at Nenegi, Medicare, and the marketplace. Along with Ela, it's East Beach on Basona Nenegi, Benya, Nahad at all needs. At Outer Nadik and Nenegi Nahalong, Aya, Azad, and Plans Ango, the body not. Healthcare.gov, BDD, East Beach, Behadil, now 1 800 318 2596. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Aya. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're speaking with two of the three Indigenous 2023 MacArthur Fellows about their artistry and so much more. Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. We also want to let you know that we'll be in New York City this Monday for a panel discussion and screening around the PBS Native America series. There's no cost to attend the event, but the deadline to RSVP is Thursday, November 30th. So go to our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com, for details and information about how to sign up. Our next guest is speaking with us in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Deanne Whitehawk. She is a multiple, excuse me, a multidisciplinary artist, and she is Shikanju Lakota. Hello, Deanne. Welcome back to Native America Calling, and congratulations on your MacArthur Fellowship. Good job. Hi. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, we just heard from Patrick and, uh, you know, what the award means to him. So, so tell us, when did you find out you were being awarded a MacArthur Fellowship? They notify us, I think it was about four weeks before they made the announcement publicly to everybody. Um, so I'd have to look at the calendar to know exactly what the number date was, but it was, yeah, about just about a month beforehand. So not long. And I imagine you had to keep everything under wraps for that month and, and go low profile on it. Was that the the instruction? Yeah, they, ab- they absolutely insist that you only tell one person. <laughs> so who would you and tell? And they recommend that it's not your mom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go, yeah. Well, who did you tell, Diani? Oh, I was with my husband and my daughters when I found out, and so I had to break the rules right away, and all three of them knew. But um, they watched me take the phone call and watched me cry about it and watched you smile and trying to figure out what's going on. And um, we, were on a, we were on a trip, and so, um, yeah, so they knew. All right. Well, congratulations, congratulations again, Diani, and happy for you and your family as well. And let's talk a little bit more about your work. Um, I know that you uh, have, a, have a ceramic piece that was recently installed as part of the Whitney Museum Commission. Tell us more about that. What went into creating that piece? Um, yeah, so the Whitney Museum is redoing the restaurant spaces on both the first floor and the eighth floor of the museum. And um, Rashid Johnson was commissioned to create a piece for the first floor restaurant space. And I was commissioned to create a piece for the eighth floor restaurant space. And uh, I worked with a a female artist-owned company here in Minneapolis called Mercury Mosaics. And they do ceramic tile. They do um, hand-cut, hand-glazed ceramic tile. And I used to be neighbors to them in a building I, my studio used to be adjacent to theirs and so i had been watching their work for years and was familiar with them and at one point i had told the owner i was like one of these days we're going to collaborate on something um and this opportunity came up to uh create a really sizable piece for the whitney museum and it you know the possibility to collaborate with mercury came to mind and um I asked them if they wanted to do it, and they said yes. And uh, so we we started on the adventure. But it's a fourteen about fourteen and a half feet high by thirty one feet wide. Um, so it covers the entire uh, west wall, the back wall of the restaurant. And it's all ceramic tile. Fourteen feet by thirty one feet, and one of the challenges with with radio is we can't really see a visual of the of the piece so describe it for us a little bit i mean obviously it's it's large it fills up a wall but what are the colors what's the what's the the content there yeah and hopefully uh, before i describe it quickly i'll just say that the restaurant is going to open sometime very early in 2024 um it's fully installed now the piece is installed and so now they have to finish the restaurant and i don't know what the exact opening date is but it will be open and available for the public to see very soon um, and there is 
uh, a newspaper article, the Times did a piece, and you can get a little sneak preview if you go Google that, New York Times, Whitney um, (laughs) Restaurant, plug my name in there or something, and people could see a little sneak preview of of what it looks like. But it's um, a... Overall abstract composition, pulling from Lakota symbolism, uh, the central uh, uh, composition component in there is the kapemini form, which is like the mirrored teepee or hourglass forms um, are kind of the central component. And those are done in uh, a line work style that for me has been uh, pervasive throughout my practice where I'm referencing porcupine quill work or referencing lane stitch or lazy stitch beadwork. Um, and I do that, you know, in, in quills or in beadwork or sometimes in paint that's mimicking those, those art forms. And so we cut tiles to uh, continue that motif that I've been utilizing in my practice for a long time. And so the black kapemini uh, forms are done in that line work but that line work is in in tiles this time and then the there's central diamond forms in between all of those hourglass forms and those have um variations of of black and white and turquoises and greens and some uh, gunmetal color tiles and um uh, blue and uh, golden yellow and red and there, there, it's it's a fairly um, uh, there's some real references to like older Lakota color palettes, and then there's some extension on that as well. Uh, and there's some Morning Star or like uh, Starburst, you know, designs that you would see in in star quilts, and some hidden eagle feather designs in there, and yeah, just. It was really fun to play it, with the tiles because they're so geometric. Um, so it's all uh-huh. geometry um, and all building off of, you know, traditions of Lakota geometry. It sounds absolutely exquisite, Diani. And and I know a big part of your work is to, to really address how for so many years, um, you know, the colonial perspective is, has really dominated art and um, this new awareness and this understanding of the value of indigenous art and the work of indigenous artists such as yourself. So I imagine this piece is a reflection of that as well. Yeah, definitely. And for me, it's a, it's a very important gesture to in within an institution like the Whitney Museum, which is the you know entire title of the Whitney Museum is the Whitney Museum of American Art. Uh, it's it's very important part of my practice to encourage people to think more critically about how we have defined American art up until now and how we have defined art with a capital A up until now. And up until now, our work, Indigenous work, and and the legacies that have of of Native artwork that have a hundred percent contributed to the artistic history of this land base simply have been told as, as side notes. They've been told as something other than they've been told as, I know a different gallery in the museum, a different class in your education system that, you know, it's, it's ethnographic, it's craft, it's design, it's um, functional. It's not art with a capital A in the way it's been included in, in the uh, narrative so far. And I just think um, that that's false 
I think that it uh, has not been thought through uh, thoroughly enough. I think there's a lot of misrepresentation in that, a lot of exclusion. And so for me, it's very important to put something within the Whitney Museum of American Art that is a, a permanent installation in the space that centers the contributions of indigenous art in the Whitney Museum of American Art and that centers the legacies of artistic making on our land base that predate the ideas of the Americas, that predate the ideas of, of what has been defined as art with a capital A so far and recognizes the fact that um, the artists from our communities have made and continue to make extremely important contributions to our collective art history. Deanna, I know you have another show that's wrapping up in Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken. What can you tell us about that exhibit? Uh, that exhibit is called uh, Rising Sun, Artists in an Uncertain America. Uh, and it is a group exhibition that uh, was curated. It was the curatorial um brainchild of, of Jody Sockmorton, and then she, she moved on to uh, another institution, and it was uh, followed up by other curators after that. But it, it was really came about during the Trump era, and there was so much you know political division and turmoil happening in the country that she wanted to create an exhibition that really uh, looked at um, the uncertainty you know that felt really at hand and wanted to ask this question of like is, that benjamin franklin had posed a long time ago is is the sun rising or the sun setting on the experiment of american democracy and so it's it's really a, a thoughtful and beautiful exhibition i have a installation piece in that exhibit that is a mirrored glass uh, video work. So the video is projected onto these mirrored glass panels so that when you stand in front of the um, installation, you become a part of the composition. And then there's a sound piece. And I worked with my friend Leah Hale, who is Dakota and Dene um, documentary filmmaker, and Talon Bazil, who is uh, Dakota Lakota uh, sound musician as well. And they helped me create the video and sound components for this installation. So it's a very immersive installation at, at PAFA. It sounds that way, Diani. And as a multidisciplinary artist, I mean, you incorporate the video elements uh, along with the tile work. And, and what other types of media do you work with? Well, I, my studio is really founded most strongly in painting and beadwork. So I, I, it, that's really the the foundation of everything I do, it comes from the practices of, of abstract painting and beadwork and quillwork. And then everything has kind of branched off from there. Um, if there's, you know, an idea or a concept that has come about that I felt like is going to be, you know, better executed in video than I've done it in video, but everything really origi originates in, in paint and beads for me. And did you get started as a young child? Have you been doing beadwork and painting and other types of artwork your whole life? Yeah, I, I really have. I've been, you know, making things and creating has always been my favorite thing to do, um, was always my favorite toy. Uh, and so it's been a part of my life continuously. I learned how to bead as a young teenager. Um, and I 
you know, definitely dabbled and played with paint, but I never had any formal painting instruction until uh, I attended the Institute of American Indian Arts as an undergraduate. Um, but I knew that I wanted to paint for a really long time. So, um, yeah, but I've, I've always been making. Diani, um, did you grow up there in the Twin Cities or, or nearby? No, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So four-hour drive from the Twin Cities. But my mom's lived here for about 20 years now, so it's been home base for a really long time. Got it, got it, yeah. And I'm also curious, I mean, with with the MacArthur Fellowship, what do you plan to do? <laughs> That's the big question. I don't know yet. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue, you know, working on what I've been working on. I, I feel like the the fellowship is this like profound gift of of five years of stability. You know, they 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 parcel this support out over a five year period, so it feels like you get a salary for five years. You know, and and with that uh, gift of stability and consistency, I think that what stability offers is the ability to to dream bigger than you might have if you were just hustling to make it before that you know um when you're when you're focused on on making it from check to check or you know when you're more focused in survival mode then you don't you can dream but you have to prioritize um stability first right but when mm -hmm. you're given a gift of stability then you can you don't have to worry about that so much and you can dream a little bit bigger and it's really early in receiving it. And I've just got done opening a new exhibition and, and traveling. Like I just got back on Friday. So I haven't even had time to, to think about what that dream is going to be yet. Um, but I think one of my first responses to a friend when they asked me, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know, maybe take a nap. <laughs> like, you know, and also my just, Offer space for 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 breathing, you know, for when you're hustling so hard all the time, you know, sometimes the imbalance comes from the inability to slow down, you know. So that's something mm -hmm. that I also want to really consider, like how, how could I utilize this moment of stability to to also slow it, slow it down a little bit and be very intentional in, in what those next moves are. Sure, sure. Patrick, uh, back to you. How about your plans for the fellowship? I'm thinking maybe you won't have to, to worry so much about how much it costed to move your company around the country and go back to Hawaii and such. Maybe you got that stability as well, perhaps? Well, yeah, you know, and I'm going to um, paraphrase exactly what Diani said. It's the stability. And and I'm still wrap, trying to wrap my head around the fact that I got this award, no less what I'm going to do with the funding from it. Um, I, I, I just I haven't dipped my toes in that yet, but I remember when I was fortunate enough to receive a, a Dance USA fellowship, and the funds were also unrestricted. And the coordinator said things like, "Hey, if you need to make mortgage payments or you need to pay off your credit card debt, those are very valid reasons so that you can have the space in your mind to create." Um, you know, there are things that I'd like to take care of around my house that has been bugging my ass for decades. <laughs> I mean, so that I can have that peace of mind. You know, there are many, many possibilities, and they're all swimming around my head, but I'm pushing them out so that I can just, you know, 
be present in the moment and enjoy what this um, award means. We are talking today with two of the 2023 MacArthur Fellows, both Indigenous artists. We have a choreographer on the show as well as a multidisciplinary artist, Diani Whitehawk and Patrick Makuakane. And they're having a wonderful conversation, learning more about their artwork. Uh, a third MacArthur Fellow, uh, Raven Chacon. He uh, couldn't join us on the show today, but we did have him on the show last year when he won a Pulitzer, and we're going to play a pre-record of that interview when we come back from this next break. And uh, phone lines are open, folks, so please give us a call if you'd like to talk with either Diani or Patrick, if you want to give them a shout-out, or you just want to chime in with regard to what uh, the future for Indigenous art holds with some of these big, big awards and recognitions that so many artists, such as the folks that we have on the show today, have received recently. Uh, just some very, 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 very successful and high-profile awards and honors that we're talking about today on the show phone lines are open 1-800-996-2848 what are you waiting for give us a call 1-800-99-NATIVE Skugtash, support by Ramona Farms for over 40 years Ramona's American Indian Foods has revived tepary beans panoli, traditional wheat flours and more delivery for your holiday gatherings available on orders placed at store.ramonafarms.com Domnyot Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Give a shout out to the indigenous MacArthur fellows on our show today. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Let's take a call right now. Chanupa, listening up in Pine Ridge on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, hello. I wanted to say a shout-out to uh, both artists, but mainly to uh, Patrick. Patrick, aloha. I think I seen your guys' demonstration when I was over at Jermaine's Luau. And the grandpa that invited me over there, he used to run with his wife named Mihilani. And, and one of the things that I've noticed, in our, in our native language, we say, We're telling you to have a good heart on this day. And for what you guys have done and continue with your traditional methods over there in Hawaii, I like that understanding because a lot of the Hawaiian natives used to come over to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation many, many years ago. So that's why I got invited. And one of the things, there is a guy over there that ran that luau. His name is uh, Cousin Reno. <laughs> so, hey, I wanted to say thank you for you guys' efforts and continue to expose more of the indigenous residents. And thank you, Sean, for taking my comment. And once again, Patrick, aloha, ahure. Thank you. Thank you, Chanupa. And uh, Patrick, I'm going to let you respond. Jermaine's Luau, Cousin Reno. Do any of those names ring a bell? Cousin Reno? Um, no, they don't. <laughs> we have never performed <laughs> at Jermaine's Luau, and I don't know who Cousin Reno, but I'm sure they're wonderful people. But I really appreciate his um, gratitude and aloha, so I will take that. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, Diani, a caller 
don't want to come on the air, but they did just pass on a message that uh, they saw some of your work in Santa Fe, and there were videos of people speaking in, in native languages, and they thought it was very, very moving. They really, really liked it. So tell us more about that exhibit, Diani, that the, the caller mentioned there in Santa Fe. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you for uh, that comment. I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Um, that exhibition was at the CCA Center for Contemporary Art in uh, Santa Fe. And, um, oh, I'm going to struggle with the title of the exhibition right now. Um, not good at calling on the spot um, information, but it's something around resilience. <laughs> but anyways, okay. uh the, the the work is titled Listen, and it's a video installation. And in each of the videos, um, I worked with my friend Rizal Benali, who's also Dakota and or Lakota and Dene, and she, um, her, her and I collaborated to go to different communities and record Native women speaking in their languages on their homelands. And so you walk into the exhibition and. Um, the museum text asked people to consider how many languages they could identify by sound. And then it asks them to consider what those languages are. And chances are most American adults can identify upwards of 10 to 20 languages by sound. And the majority of those uh, non-native uh, American adults, they'll probably all be languages that are not from this continent. And then it conversely asks people to consider how many languages from this continent, how many indigenous languages to this land can they identify by sound? Um, mm -hmm. And to, then asks them to consider how profound it is, you know, the impacts of colonization and, and what they've had to the fact that people who live here may not even be able to identify one, nonetheless two or hundreds of uh, languages that are actually from this land base. And then it gives people an opportunity to walk through the gallery and be introduced to a small uh, sampling of languages uh, from this land base spoken by people that are living today on the homelands from which the person and language come from. Okay, now that sounds really fascinating. And I, and I love that, well, that scientific element of, of the, the, the languages and being able to recognize what those might be. And uh, our producers just looked it up, Diani. The exhibit was called Self-Determined a contemporary survey of native and indigenous artists. And it ended last year in December, 2022. So great job, Diani. just sounds like you just have yes. so much work. It's just so exciting. Awesome. Thanks for looking up the title. And if I could tell you real <laughs> quick, if anybody's in the LA area, I have an exhibit up right now at various small fires gallery and that work, the listen work, the video work is up in that gallery right now. Got it. Got it. Composer Raven Chacon is also a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship. He couldn't be a part of our discussion today, but we thought we'd play a portion of our interview with him in 2022 after he won a Pulitzer Prize. He was recognized for his work, Voiceless Mass, that was commissioned to be performed over Thanksgiving in a church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He said he thinks more about personal expression and crafting meaningful work, and not so much about how a work will be received by people who give out awards. All of the projects are different, but, you know, I, it's usually a, a set of circumstances I've given, I'm given, you know, whether that's the instrumentation, whether that's the invitation, like in this case with the, the, the date and the venue. Uh, other times, you know, maybe I'm collaborating with friends 
And so we are working out something that uh, a way of making music that is only for ourselves and whatever else happens beyond that is, is some other accident or residue or artifact of that experience. And so, you know, I, I'm, I think the more I've been working on this, I was finding maybe more kind of conceptual reasons for making, making the art, you know, I was finding other kinds of metaphor and symbology and narrative inside of these opportunities or these situations. And that, that might be the best way to describe my interest in, in working in this, in this medium. I mean, of course we love music. Everybody loves music, but inside of music, there's all this other, all these other things that can happen. And a lot of them having to do with human relationships of the people that are performing it or their relationship with the listener. That was Diné composer Raven Chacon talking with us in June of 2022 after he won the Pulitzer. You can listen to the full interview in our archives at NativeAmericaCalling.com. Chacon is also one of this year's MacArthur Fellows. And Diani, before we went to, to a previous break, I, I mentioned how it just seems like these some really big awards, big recognitions, fellowship, grants. I mean, here's a Pulitzer Prize. Is it just me, or are we just really, really seeing uh, an unprecedented era of, of high-profile recognition for artists such as you and Raven and Patrick? Without a doubt. Uh, it Especially in the last, I mean, it's been heightened within the last two to three years, uh, I think it feels like the momentum started within the last maybe five to six years. Um, but these last couple of years, really, um, there's been a lot more support and recognition of Native artists. And it's finally reached beyond like a tiny handful of people that had been getting support, um, you know, for, for many years. And there have been phases in the past where the like mainstream art world um, has honed in on and, 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 you know, done some moments of support and recognition of, of indigenous art. Um, but they've been like phases or trends for a little while, and then it fell out. And this feels different. And I, it feels like what I hope will be sustained support. Like I, I feel like the field and hopefully humanity is finally um, growing to really recognize that we have richer communities and richer uh, artistic spaces when we are including everyone in a community and everyone in a space. Yeah, it really feels like we're, we're coming into like their golden era because I can think back to like earlier, like decades ago, you know, some of the famous Native artists that really made a name for themselves back like in my parents' generation, even my grandparents, and now there's this whole new movement, new arts. And what do you think's driving it, Diani? Uh, increased collective consciousness <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, in, in the activism that's happening out of many, many, many communities. And I, I believe it, it feels like at least within the states, you know, um, there is a larger push and a larger recognition to look at and deal with the um, legacy of colonialism here and what that has done 
um, to communities that, you know, to, to non-European, non-European American communities, the impact that it has had on everybody collectively and how that continues to play out in our society today. And I, there are more and more people that are willing to look at that and recognize that and reckon with it and how it's reflected in our in our institution, in the, our various fields of, of study and work and play. And that, you know, I think accumulation of collective voices of, um, you know, demanding that we look at this and we address this and we move towards healthier models, uh, I believe is, is there are more and more and more people listening and willing to look at that and really desiring and wanting to move forward. Um, so, I, you know, I, it's, it's, I think it's collective activism. You know, I think it's collective speaking. And um, younger generations maybe wanting to shift towards not, not such um, strong hierarchical models but uh, models that are built with more um, equity and equality. At least that's my hope. <laughs> uh-huh, I hope uh-huh. it's not, you know, I hope we doesn't get disproven later, but it feels like that's what's <laughs> happening now. Well, Patrick, let me get your thoughts because uh, as Diani mentions, you know, what's driving this, but I'm also curious, do you think this exposure and this recognition, do you think that's actually going to also influence the type of indigenous art that's produced by, by choreographers and, and artists such as yourself and Diane and Diani and and Raven. Do you see? Do you think that's going to change art as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm the first Native Hawaiian to receive this award, and there are so many other Native Hawaiian artists and humanists that really deserve this kind of recognition. And I think it will boost people's confidence that they have something to contribute on the world stage. Um, I'm fortunate because I live in this place called San Francisco, and they've been pushing for equity for the longest of time. I mean, even the San Francisco Arts Commission has a special cultural equity initiative that was purposely developed for the BIPOC community because they recognize that the San Francisco ballet and opera was just siphoning off you know, most of the funding, and there needed to be equity to communities such as ours. Um, and finally, I think the rest of the United States, through collective activism, exactly what Diani said, is really recognizing, hey, where is the equity in this? And, and we have like a richness of cultures here in um, the United States. In, in the Bay Area alone, there's over 90 distinct world cultures. Can you imagine the San Francisco Ethnic Dance Festival showcased this like pluralism of art and eloquence? It was it's time. The, t- the time is now, and I'm so glad, just like Diani said, that it's finally coming to light, the contributions that um, all these different cultures have that just, you know, our differences make us holy. It's so beautiful, the tapestry of, that you can weave with many cultures rather than just one certain color. Mm-hmm. Patrick, tell us more about the Native Hawaiian community there in Northern California. Where there are there a lot of uh, Native Hawaiians there in San Francisco area? Uh, yeah, a ton of Native Hawaiians here in um, the Bay Area and in LA. You know, more Hawaiians I think than there are actually in Hawaii, and that tells you something. The uh, cost yeah, of living does. in Hawaii is yeah incredibly difficult. Um, but there is a sleeping giant that has awoken in Hawaii that was due to Mauna Kea, and I'm not sure if people are aware of the 30-minute 
30-meter telescope that was to be built on Mauna Kea, which is sacred land. And um, the thousands of Hawaiians who woke up and protested. And it changed the face of our culture and sort of ignited something that hasn't been lit before to for us to recognize our agency and how activism and how Hula was part of that activism at the mountain, you know, day after day after day that really um, showcased our strength and our ability to finally say, no, we will not take this anymore. You will not take our sacred lands. You will recognize the rights of Native people. So, um, yeah, we're now a force to be reckoned with, I think. Mm -hmm. Another question I wanted to ask you, Patrick, before we wrap up, do any of your performances include country music? I'm wondering if that's the only genre I haven't done yet. Let me see. Let me see. <laughs> the only reason no, I ask is because I... Okay, okay, because I I was yeah. I went to a performance, uh, a a native Hawaiian performer, uh, a singer, a concert just last month, and I thought it was interesting because he mentioned that uh, a lot of native Hawaiians have a real love for country music, and he said because a lot of country music songs uh, are island songs, they just change them to make them more like island. But there's a real connection between some of the the native Hawaiian music and the country music that we hear, you know, here stateside. And I just kind of wanted to get your thought on that why that is is because we have a strong relationship with cowboys that goes back to like the 19th century when the Mexican vaqueros taught Hawaiians how to steer and rope cattle. So yes, their music infiltrated our music and came up with something blessed and beautiful. So we do have a strong history of cowboys and that kind of um, land language in our heritage. Well, Patrick, thank you again for joining us. Uh, I just want to wish you continued success and Diani as well. Much success to you going forward. Wonderful to have you both on our show today on Native America Calling and just sharing a little bit of the work that you do and the inspiration that you draw from. And uh, again, these fantastic, fantastic recognitions, 2023 MacArthur Fellowships. And at this point, we are going to have to wrap up the show. We're out of time. But I want to encourage everybody to please tune into Native America Calling again tomorrow. We will celebrate the contributions of tribal museums. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.